I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Pazopinib, a targeted therapy marketed as Votriant, is used to treat certain cancers. The drug has shown promise as a potential treatment for the rare genetic blood vessel disorder, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. But when a change in ownership of the drug took place, efforts to develop it for HHT ended. That led the patient advocacy organization Cure HHT to step in and sponsor a Phase 2-3 trial on its own. We spoke to Marion Clancy, Executive Director and Senior Director of Strategic Partnerships for Cure HHT, about the organization's decision to become a clinical trial sponsor, why it felt it was necessary to do so, and what other patient organizations can learn from its experience. Marianne, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Danny. I'm uh, really appreciative to be here. We're going to talk about HHT, the Cure HHT Foundation, and its sponsorship of a clinical trial for an experimental therapy to treat the condition. Let's start with HHT. For listeners not familiar with it, what is it? HHT is short for hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, quite a mouthful. (laughs) That's why we call it HHT. And it is a genetic uh, disease affecting the blood vessels in several organs in the body. And when these blood vessels, they're malformed um, in the brain, the lung, and the liver, those are large vessels that create arteriovenous malformations or direct connections. And those um, AV malformations in the brain and the lung can rupture suddenly without warning, causing um, stroke uh, and sudden death, disability. Um, When they are in the liver, it leads to heart failure as well as pulmonary hypertension. The vessels that um, are smaller are in the nose and the gastrointestinal tract, and they cause chronic bleeding um, over a lifetime. 50% of the population's anemic and iron deficient, and in uh, about 15 to 20% of the population, um, patients are uh, transfusion dependent. It affects about one in 5,000 people. We think 1.6 million people globally. So I think it's um, one of the more common um, rare diseases. And it's also the second most common cause of inherited bleeding, uh, two times more common than hemophilia, but most people have never heard of it. Does this disease progress in any expected way, or do people just discover they have it after a a crisis? So that's a very good question. Um, Many people uh, discover they have this disease uh, when there's an event, a crisis. 
And um, people think that the most common manifestation, 90% of patients have nosebleeds. And many patients um, and many people in our community think that this is just normal. This is what we have in our family. And then there oftentimes is a catastrophic event and no one's really putting the pieces together because most of these malformations are internal and they're invisible. So the only outward sign are our nosebleeds. And in fact, we have quite an odyssey of diagnosis. Because it's multi-organ, uh, many patients in our community see many different specialists for different problems. And as such, um, if we're not really taking an accurate family history and know about this disease, the odyssey of diagnosis from your first nosebleed to a diagnosis is 27 years. It's total, totally unacceptable. Given that, how are people generally diagnosed? So we have uh, something called the Curacao Criteria. And uh, there are um, four um, areas that um, are critical. One are recurrent and spontaneous nosebleeds. And as I said, that can affect um, anywhere from 90 to 95% of people. Although there are families and some patients that you know, don't have nosebleeds. Um, and what complicates this too is that people, it's genetic, it's autosomal dominant. And so people in the same family may not have the same manifestations. And these nosebleeds can be mild or severe. Um, also, number two are the presence of multiple what are called telangiectasia. And they, these are small red spots that when you press on them, they turn white. Um, and that occurs um, on the skin of the hands, the lips, the face, inside the mouth and nose. And then um, number three would be um, these arteriovenous malformations or telangiectasia in one or more internal organs. And fourth is family history, a first degree relative. So if you have you know, two or three of these um, characteristics, uh, that is your diagnosis. We also have genetic testing. Our genes were uh, discovered in 1994. And so we do have genetic testing for uh, three genes in HHG. And what treatment options exist today? So the history of the treatment has been primarily interventional. Um, in the brain, if you have an AVM in the brain, uh, what um, they, they can be treated by what's called embolization, which is taking um, a catheter with um, coils that, or glue or some embolic material to seal off that artery to prevent um, the bleeding. The other, uh, depending on the size of the AVM in the brain or the location, you could either have embolization, something called stereotactic radiation, which shrinks uh, the AVM, or brain surgery through a craniotomy. In the lung, it's primarily embolization. However, many of the um, AVMs in the lung are multiple. So uh, these procedures are done throughout life. In the nose, um, there's been laser, bipolar cautery, and something called sclerotherapy. Although in the last 
10 years or so, um, we've had uh, really great success with using therapeutics, actually cancer drugs at lower dose. The same thing in the gastrointestinal tract. In the liver, it's a bit more complicated. Um, therapeutics are showing promise, um, and many, but some patients move on to liver transplant, which is, um, you know, certainly uh, a big undertaking. And if there is a lack of interest in pursuing potential therapies, is that a, a function of understanding the underlying biology, the, the economics of the disease, or is it have to do with the fact that it's difficult to identify a patient population? So you really great question. Um, HHT was first described in 1896, um, believe it or not. And, um, you know, we still don't have an approved treatment. It really has been under the radar. And I think most people have thought, well, you know, people get nosebleeds, you know, they might be anemic, just take some iron supplements. Um, it's not a big deal. Um, and I will tell you that the tide has really changed because a lot of these treatments were are interventional. And we know through science that when you have these interventional treatments, you were really um, creating injury to the vessel. And even though you think you're treating the vessel by say with laser in the nose, that's temporary. That lasts for six months and then you get twice as many telangiectasia than you had in the first place. So I would say it was a lack of awareness and the uh, big breakthrough came, I believe, when um, by happenstance, um, a few patients were undergoing um, treatment for cancer and were getting Avastin. And suddenly their nosebleed stopped, anemia changed, uh, the quality of life went up and, and uh, they were successful. So uh, that has been used off label. So the, I would say in the last five years, there's been you know, a lot of interest, but this, this disease has been under the radar uh, for a long time. CureHHC is a patient advocacy organization. We've seen many organizations fund research, but HHC is unusual in that it's moved directly into the clinical trials realm, sponsoring a, a phase two, three study for a potential treatment for HHT-related bleeding. This is an approved drug that's now off-label. Before we talk about it, I, I'd like to take a step back, though, and talk about Cure HHT's evolution and how it got to this point. What's been the, the research landscape into HHT and how has the organization used seed grants to engage young investigators to work on studying the condition? Thanks for asking. Uh, Cure HHT was started in 1991. Um, I also have HHT. I was diagnosed, believe it or not, in 1994 and have, you know, my own challenges. Um, you know, we, I lost a sister when she was just 14. That was 1959. We didn't know why. Now I know. My brother had part of his lung out when he was 17. I lost my mother at 21. And so I was diagnosed in 1994 and asked to join the board. And early on, you know, we were a very young organization, kind of building up, making connections, supporting um, each other, um, really helping um, patients that, families that were um, learning that they had this disease and referring 
for treatment. We had um, three centers of excellence um, in 1996. Now we are up to 32 in North America and about 22 globally. And we started out um, small as every organization does. And back then, um, our genes were patented. And so in 2003, I became executive director in 2001. I was the first employee that was hired part-time um, and certainly working as we all do in advocacy, as rare disease advocacy, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week um, and, and really feeling, you know, having such meaning um, in, this, in, in this organization. So we started fundraising um, because we wanted to get those patents released and get genetic testing, and we were successful. So we started providing seed grants, small seed grants, um, $50,000, some of our young investigators, $30,000. And um, we continued to do that um, to this day. And that um, has resulted in, we've invested about $3 million in seed grants and that have been leveraged to over $55 million in federal funding. It's really been amazing. And we've grown our research community, our science community, our clinicians. So we really felt that, you know, no one was going to come to our rescue. We needed to build our, our research portfolio and, and look at what questions needed to be answered um, and provide the initial seed funding um, to answer those questions. As you sought to do it, did the organization construct a, a formal research agenda? And how did it prioritize what needed to be done? Um, in the early days, um, we have a scientific medical advisory board and we attended our scientific conferences. We sponsored them primarily. And we worked really closely with our scientific community. And then as we um, grew as an organization, I'd say the real turning point is that we were aware, awarded the rarest one um, grant the, in the first um, 30 organizations uh, with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And that allowed us to really become a patient um, focused, organized international research network where we were able then to bring all three of our audiences together, our clinicians, our sci basic scientists, translational, and patients. And we surveyed all three audiences. And what we did was develop work streams and we came together and each one of these work streams provided um, priorities, what were important, um, where were the gaps? And um, we were able then to create a research roadmap. Now, last July, I was able to create a um, therapeutic arm specifically to focus on um, executing against this research roadmap, providing the tools that we didn't have, like a biotissue repository or biorepository. Um, uh, uh, registries, both um, for uh, patients in our centers of excellence and also for our organization that would be patient-entered. So we just continue to grow. Our community of families have been incredibly generous 
they have suffered through multi-generations of this disease in seeing so much suffering that really people um, step up and, and want to end this. You have a background in healthcare administration, but what did the organization do to build expertise to pursue research? How did it think about expertise it needed in-house and through advisory boards or what steps did it take? We were really fortunate in 1992, we had an initial um, scientific and medical advisory board. And then as we grew and we started to fund research, we looked around and said, okay, this is expertise we don't have. So we attended different meetings. Um, We invited speakers at our scientific conferences. We had a scientific conference. Our first one was in 1996. We're an international organization. There were 60 scientists and physicians. The one we had in Portugal last year were 300. And we did that, I think, primarily because we are incredibly collaborative with our scientists um, in-house. We've invited speakers um, where we knew that we lacked the expertise to our scientific conferences, to our patient conferences. We have funded um, international consensus guidelines for screening and treatment. And we slowly built that network. We also provide travel grants um, for young people, young scientists and young physicians and fellows and students who don't have the funds to come to these meetings, to present posters or abstracts. And that has really grown um, the community and, and grown the pipeline. And really, our our centers of excellence have also grown. And so there are young fellows that then um, have moved on to continue to work in this area. So it's been a whole combination of things through the years. Pazopinib is used to treat kidney cancer. It's been marketed under the brand name Votriant. What is Pazopinib? So pazopinib is, um, as you said, a, a drug that has been approved to treat kidney cancer. It's, it's um, So in HHT, in, at the vascular level, you have something called too much VEGF, which is what you have in cancer. Cancer is really, you know, growth of blood vessels really growing out of control. So uh, pazopinib is, uh, belongs to a class of drugs called tyro, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It's also a VEGF blockade. And, and so this, um, this drug, um, we were able to have a phase one trial when it was owned by GlaxoSmithKline um, funded. One of our board members worked at Glaxo, has HHT in the family, and saw this drug and said, you know, I wonder if this would work. And so they funded this phase one. We had planned for 30 patients. And after the seventh patient, and again, it was low dose. This was 50 milligrams. So it was one fifth of the cancer dose. And it was amazing. After the seventh patient was recruited and, and completed um, <clears throat> the whole por- uh, portfolio, the oncology portfolio, was sold to another company. And we appealed and pleaded, please continue the study, and, and they did not. So I personally went and talked to the patients that were involved in this study, and they got their life back. 
They weren't transfusion dependent. They weren't going in for iron infusions every month. Um, their quality of life increased. You know, many people go on disability because they're they're really they're homebound. When you are transfusion dependent, you have zero energy. Uh, you you are are really suffering tremendously. And this drug um, did did really um, help reduce bleeding substantially in these patients, and in some patients, reversed heart failure. How did CureHHT get involved in the development of it for for the disease? So um, we are pretty relentless. And we um, looked at this landscape, looked at this drug, and we knew at the time, you know, we were trying to talk with different companies to invest in us, and it wasn't happening. So... We um, went to the board and made the pitch that uh, this drug was going to be going off patent and that um, we would invest in um, the biosimilar, um, the generic. And uh, so for the last six years, we invested $100,000 every year. And we couldn't have done any of this without the board's confidence feeling that, you know, we need to do, do something and, and get some therapeutics for our patients. This, this has been going on much too long. And so, you know, we were able to recruit the expertise from outside of our organization. Um, we had um, our physicians serve as um, principal investigators. We funded the early part of the PK studies and and worked with um, the FDA. They provided a breakthrough designation, and so we got every step of the way. We were we were excited, we were motivated, but we didn't know what we didn't know, and um, we certainly didn't have millions of dollars to fund, um, you know, a double blind placebo controlled clinical trial. So we applied um, for two grants, um, one to the um, uh, Department of Defense Congressional Medical Research Program, and then again to the FDA. And this was all pre-COVID, and we got the grants. So now we had to build out um, an organization and how we were going to do this. So we have all the outside contractors. We interviewed um, CROs. Uh, drug manufacturers, but again, um, not an easy undertaking. Uh, we are, there were things that we learned along the way a lot that we didn't know, costs that increased, but we um, now have just launched um, this trial. We have 12 sites planned. There may be more, 60 patients, and um, we hope to take this all the way through to registration. You, you mentioned you're using a dose that's one-fifth the dose that would be used in kidney cancer. Right. One of the implications of that, I suspect, is that you need a, a pill that's not commercially available, something that's right. that's a smaller dose. What right. have you had to do to, to address that? So we contracted with a company that um, where we get the um, the the drug formulation. 
and we partnered with um, uh, Thermo Fisher uh, Pantheon, and they are the drug manufacturer, and they are manufacturing it in, you know, 25 milligrams. So we are looking at 25, 50 milligrams. One of our researchers has a put a grant in for a dose escalation study to see, you know, in some patients that might be more severe, we have to go for a higher um, dose, maybe 100, 150, even 200 um, till they're bleeding and uh, gets under control and then can, can uh, reduce that. So um, it definitely is a labor of love. We are really fortunate to have um, you know, our lead person has, has uh, our board member has done all this pro bono for a decade. Um, and he has pharma experience. And um, we have had another board member who um, they, he worked for a law firm. And so they're helping us with all the contracts. So it's, um, it, it, we are manufacturing and we are really um, sponsoring a, um, not only sponsoring, but creating a, a whole drug that we hope to probably partner with a biotech or company as we move forward, um, provided that, you know, the clinical trial, everything goes well, we have minimal side effects, um, and can take this all the way through. You, you talk about having access to people with expertise in pharma, you have people right. with expertise in law, but, you know, I, I suspect you needed to tap some regulatory expertise as well. How did you go about We're doing in that? The, right. We're in the midst of doing that, actually. Exactly right. Because that was a big uh, area that we didn't have. And so, um, again, you never know who's in your community. And so it's really important because, um, if you talk to people within your community and they have colleagues or they know people, it, you can really um, talk to people who see what you're doing and really want to help you um, and, uh, and understand your cause. And so we have um, had to do that and we do rely on outside consultants um, to help us. Um, we have a clinical trial manager. We've also used out, outside strategic consultants. I mean, there were all kinds of, of people that um, have really helped us. And I would say it's really through connections and colleagues of people within our community. I, I imagine if you are successful, this will require that someone make a, a low dose version of this drug. Right. Is have you had those conversations yet with potential partners on the other side? We we are beginning to. We have not. We are we our focus has been really to get the project launched and now we are recruiting and enrolling patients. And um that will be the next step. You know, we're not going to be, you know, manufacturing the drug and cure HHT. So, um, so we will seek partnerships, but we have a big stake in this. I mean, we've been working on this for a decade and we did it because no one else was stepping up. 
And we decided to take our own future into our hands and help our patients and help our, our families who really deserve this in our community. They deserve um, treatment that isn't interventional, where we could have drugs and not surgeries, and, um, and felt that um, we needed to, to be bold and relentless and strategic. And, and um, it's been partnerships. You know, we couldn't do this alone. It, it's been partnerships and, and, um, and, and really having a board that believed in what we were doing. We've seen this migration from patient advocacy organizations funding basic research to getting involved in funding clinical trials, you know, either through venture right. philanthropy or grants. Um, this is something beyond that very right. hands-on approach to getting involved in drug development without a pharmaceutical partner. What lessons have you learned from this that you would share with, with other patient advocacy organizations looking to advance therapies for, for their conditions? I would say um, several things. Um, one is, is really collaborate with your physicians and with scientists. Um, talk to as many people as possible. Be bold. Uh, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And you learn from those mistakes and you, you can't dwell on them. You have to pick up and, and move forward. Trust me, all along the way, you know, when, uh, for example, you know, we had estimates of the manufacture of the drug, which were pre-COVID. Well, after COVID, that price doubled. So what are we going to do? So, you know, we we continued to move forward. And um, I would say that um, we have a seat at the table where there is mutual respect. And as an advocacy organization, don't ever forget that we have the patient perspective. We are living this every day. And those of us that are in leadership are really the voice of our community. We really represent, you know, our, our families out there who um, are, are really deserving. I would say also you have to think strategically um, as, as well as, you know, you're going to work a lot of long hours and you, you roll up your sleeves and you get the expertise in that you need. And um, sometimes you have to um, uh, have very um, serious conversations, even with those people who are your partners. Um to to basically state that hey you know this is what our budget is like it it doesn't it's not an ending budget <laughs> we're not a pharma company these are you know patient donations and we've worked really hard to get these grants and um, advocate take charge to make change you, you really have to have to do that. Marianne Clancy, Executive Director and Senior Director of Strategic Partnerships for Cure HHT. Marianne, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, and I, I love your podcasts. They really um, bring a lot to uh, the rare disease community. Well, thank you. 
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.